Welcome to Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. We explore human development here, spirituality, psychedelics, sexuality, and more. Our aim? Equipping you with tools for a fulfilling post-religious life. This is Almost Awakened. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one of your hosts today, Bill Real. I have, we've brought back Britt Hartley to co-host this episode with us. This is her doing. She's put this together, and I'm super excited to join forces with her again. Uh, Britt, how are you? I'm great. I wouldn't miss it. It's like riding a bike. I feel right right at home being good. with you today. Good, good. Your your voice is a little uh, different than normal. You were in an extended interview with Mormon Stories yesterday. I would encourage people to check that out. It was a little over three and a half hours, I believe, uh, and you had a chance to touch a lot of ground that we cover here in the Almost Awakened podcast that you do on your TikTok channel. Uh, before we jump into what you've got planned for us today, I do want to give you a moment to point those watching this uh, video interview, this, this episode, to know where they can find the things that you're doing. So would you mind spending just a second letting people know where they can find you now that you're you're not uh, podcasting full-time with Almost Awakened, although you and I were just talking a minute ago that uh, we're hoping to, to join forces a few times here and there to, to interview various people. But anyway, a couple moments for you, my friend. Yeah, I hope to still come in and, and bring in some guests that are you know, would give us just really great dialogue and discussion. So I'll always come back for those conversations, but I have moved into the content creation side. Um, not quite as successful as the guests that we have today, but um, have, have found that that is, has been really a great way for me to interact with an audience that's interested in what I'm, you know, what we've been talking about for the past two years on the Almost Awakened podcast. So my website is nonsensespirituality.com and I spend most of my time on TikTok when I am doing content creation um, and it's under no nonsense spirituality. Awesome. Super cool. What do you, what do you have planned for us? I think the folks are going to be deeply interested in this conversation. I'm super excited to announce that we got Dan, the man, Dan McClellan uh, on the podcast today and what he's doing on social media is just so amazing. So incredible. Just the fact that he can do it at all is something even new just in the religious world, in the world of, of spirituality and scholarship. And um, I'm just so excited to have Dan with us today. So Dan has a bachelor's at BYU in ancient Near Eastern studies, a master's in Jewish studies at Oxford, a master's in biblical studies at Trinity Western, and a doctorate in the cognitive science on religion. And um, he's just been a huge benefit to all of us and has a big social media platform where he seeks to help the public better understand the Bible and religion. So Dan, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me and for the very kind words. I appreciate it. You, all of those degrees, man, that's a lot of time spent in academia <laughs> and education. I remember the movie Tommy boy and mm -hmm. uh, he, he, graduates after like he goes like you know it took me six years <laughs> and uh, i think well, the you know a lot of people go to college for six yeah. years yeah, yeah they, they call, call them doctors, doctors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you do you've got the dr next to your name because uh, you my friend uh have put the time and energy in to to become informed on the the things that you have degrees in and super honored to have you on well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. And uh, and I keep my mouth shut on the plane when somebody asks for a doctor, though. So yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> not, not that kind of doctor. <laughs> Super cool. That's right. 
All right. So I'm going to move into my first question, which is going to sound just kind of out of the blue, but I've gone on your lives multiple times to ask you this question. And of course it gets lost and and there's so many people on your lives. And so (laughs) this is the question that I've wanted to ask you. I've wanted to get your opinion on, because I don't think I've seen it addressed in your content. And it's, um, I, I, I realize that there's times you're asked questions about Mormon doctrine and you'll defer to Mormon scholars and you you have a focus on the Bible, but it's a biblical question. I promise. Okay. So from what I understand, um, Joseph Smith's doctrine around the Godhead changes, you know, from the lectures on faith to the King Follett discourse. And then we Mm -hmm. have some Adam God stuff from Brigham Young. So by the time kind of the early 1900s roll around, there's just a lot of confusion around the Godhead. And so mm-hmm. the first presidency asks James E. Talmadge to kind of prepare a doctrinal statement, clarifying the doctrine on the father and the son. And he right. writes kind of Jesus, the Christ. He writes kind of this first presidency statement about kind of, you know, where he's codifying that when in the Bible, it's talking about Elohim, this is God, the father. And when right. it says Jehovah, it's meaning God, the son. So how well is that approach taken in kind of wider biblical scholarship and kind of how did Talmadge do as he was trying to make sense of the Godhead? Well, I think, uh, I think Talmadge imposes a, a systematization on the text that really is based on his making sense of, of the debate as it was going on regarding uh, the identities of the folks in the temple ceremony. That's kind of the origin of a lot of this. And so uh, the idea that, uh, that you've got God the Father and God the Son as, as consistently distinguishable in the Hebrew Bible is, is just not something you'll find in, in biblical scholarship. Uh, it, and, and even like Bruce R. McConkie has acknowledged, there are, there are places in the text where the way the doctrinal exposition on the Godhead is laid out by Talmadge doesn't work where it will talk about Adonai, uh, Jehovah, in a way that's clearly referring to the Father and not the Son. So it's not perfectly consistent. It's not something that you can arrive at through um, an examination of the biblical text itself. It is something that must be overlaid upon uh, the biblical text. And there is... There is at least one passage in the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which seems to draw a distinction between Elyon as the Most High and Adonai um, and presents Adonai as one of the B'nai Elohim, one of the children of the Most High, one of the children of God. And so there are a lot of Latter-day Saints who who will pounce on that feature of critical biblical scholarship and say that that supports uh, the Latter-day Saint perspective on um, Jesus represented in um, the Hebrew Bible through this name Jehovah or Adonai, as, as I am wont to say. Um, but you also have the combined Adonai Elohim that is used a lot as well. And there's not really a way to suggest that these are two different entities who are being referred to collectively in this uh, in this combined divine name. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of saying that um, there's no inherent meaning in the biblical text and that we are constructing meaning as as we read it. But um, of all the, the constructed meanings, this is certainly one of the most constructed of them, uh, this idea that we can distinguish Elohim as God the Father and, and Jehovah as God the Son or as Jesus Christ. Mm, interesting. 
Um, one thing that happens to me is because I spend so much time trying to combat on my own kind of social media, trying to combat what I see as either bad theology or bad biblical interpretations, that I don't sometimes talk enough about the benefits of studying the Bible as a long-form conversation, even to those who are non-believers, um, mm -hmm. and the benefit it's been to me personally and the growth in working with a piece of text. So for people on this part podcast who are largely post-deconstruction, whatever that looks like, but still spiritually exploring, what is the benefit of studying the Bible even for a non-believer? Well, I think there there are parts of the Bible that explore some of the deep questions of being human and living in a world where, uh, you know, we don't seem to be in control of much at all and where bad things are going to happen to good people and good things are going to happen to bad people. And how are we to make sense of this? How are we to find meaning in it? And I think all, all reading to one degree or another is... Uh, is an attempt to learn something about ourselves. And so I think anytime we're in a text um, and in that negotiation with the text to try to generate some meaning that is going to be meaningful or useful to us, there's value. Uh, and seeing the way that people have explored these questions in the past, uh, I, I think certainly gives us opportunities to consider different answers to some of these questions. The problem of evil is addressed a handful of different ways. If we look in Ecclesiastes, if we look in Job, if we look in Proverbs, if we can look in some of the apocryphal literature as well and see other approaches to the problem of evil that I think uh, just give us uh, a larger palette to work with as we kind of construct our own concept of ourselves and the world around us and our place within it. So, so I think as with the exploration of any, uh, any text, there can be meaning, there can be value. As long as we're conscious of, of what we're doing uh, in approaching it, as long as we're conscious of the role that we play in the construction of meaning. And in my personal opinion, as long as we are also trying to look out for uh, potential harm that can be caused to individuals and to groups that might be minoritized, that might be oppressed, that mar might be marginalized. So do you think that everyone, at least in the Western world, should study the Bible? Should everyone be familiar with the Bible? Because you can't understand Western civilization or literature or art or government kind of without it? Or do you think it should be, yeah, this is a fun text to explore when you approach it, you know, appropriately, if you want to go down it, but not everyone should be, should have to be familiar with the Bible. Where do you land on that? Um, I, I think it's immensely helpful. I think it is critical if somebody's going to engage in public discourse uh, in a way that's going to have any influence. Uh, the Bible exercises outside in, outsized influence in our world today. It is something that is brought up repeatedly. Uh, within our state and our federal legislatures. It is something that exercises so much influence over the way people live. I think it would be negligent for people who are engaging in, in that kind of discourse and who are exercising influence to be unaware of what's in it. At the same time, I, I would be loath to um, say everybody is required to to read the Bible, but I, I think it would be phenomenally helpful for there to be some kind of a Bible as literature component of public education uh, or of, uh, of even higher education, just because um, you can't really 
speak the same language as so much of uh, the Eurocentric world, at least on our side of, of the Atlantic. I think it's getting less and less influential every year in Europe, but um, you can't even speak the same language as, as most people in the United States uh, if you are not familiar with, with what's in the Bible. Um, but yeah, I think I think a secular approach to learning that would be. Would there's be been there's been a couple movements from secular humanists and atheists to do history of religion or Bible as literature in public schools, and it's usually been the Christian influence that has shut that down. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, yeah, that <clears throat> they're not quite on board with that project. Yeah, I. Uh, You've spent, a, again, I said this at the beginning of the show, you spent a lot of time getting educated on biblical scholarship, biblical criticism. And as somebody, again, I don't, I don't believe the Bible to be the word of God anymore, but I certainly see the value it has for a, a group of people uh, aligning behind myth and uh, it having significant benefit for those people to work together as large tribes, uh, again, referring to the book Sapiens, when people get over a group of 150 or so, they really need that myth to work together and big tribes kill small tribes. As you've gotten that education, you know, we all start off when we're in belief systems, we all start off more orthodox or fundamentalist than we tend to move towards as we get that sort of education. The Bible's full of stories of talking donkeys and certain time periods that things last and uh, mythological stories that in a modern scientific worldview would be considered absurd. And some of it is mm-hmm. harmful, which I know you're not a fan of. There, there are ways in which religious myths are used to allow the majority to beat up on the minority. Mm-hmm. My question is, as you've navigated your education, how have you sorted out or, or walked the line of accepting what religious text within the system that you believe, and let's just say Christianity at large, it sort of imposes on you on some level that you've got to believe that, for instance, if, uh, and I know it's a long question, but if if a woman is raped, that the rapist pay the, the, the uh, father of the victim a certain amount of money, and then they get to be married, right? And that to you and I, that just seems so atrocious. How do you navigate these lines? Because that one's obvious, but some of it's not obvious. How do you walk the line of what is absurd, what is harmful, what is worthy of belief in a way that you know is respectful of the education that you've got? Because I think you do a damn good job of it. It, it seems like that's such a hard walk to figure out what you cast aside and what you continue to believe. And not that you can even, but just generally speaking, how do you navigate that? Well, I, I decided when I started um, on my education that if it was going to be, because I, I started um, down my educational road with the goal of, of being a scholar and contributing to the scholarship. And I decided from the very start that if I was going to make a contribution beyond my own little bubble around me that I needed to approach it as critically as, as I could. And so I've had many, many years of practice, um, ensuring that, that I'm keeping my dogmas apart from my scholarship. And 
one of the things that uh, that I've uh, I've stated a handful of times on on my channel, you know, data over dogma is something that I consider to be aspirational. You know, nobody can be truly objective. We're all influenced by all kinds of different factors, and our experiences and our perspectives and all these kinds of things. But what I've stated is that I will, will always try to give the data priority. But the one dogma that does govern what I do is that all other things being equal, and that's a big caveat that that I, I don't want to go unnoticed, but all other things being equal, I will give the benefit of the doubt to the less powerful group. Uh, the more I've studied, the more I've seen how power dynamics and, and power asymmetries play into the kind of harm that can go on within and between groups. And studying the cognitive science of religion and evolutionary psychology associated with the different features of human sociology and cognition that we group under this rubric of religion, there is an awful lot that can be helpful. And then there is an awful lot that can cause harm. And so as I've progressed in my education um, with that goal of, of keeping my own personal dogmas separate from, from my scholarship, I, I would like to think I have been unapologetic about speaking out against uh, those aspects of what we label religion that cause harm, and particularly to less powerful um, groups and individuals who are members of of less powerful groups. And I'm not perfect at it. I get called out about things uh, from time to time. Like yesterday on Twitter, I had someone uh, giving me a hard time about my own um, Mormon stories uh, interview. And so um, I'm I'm always learning about some of the blind spots in in my own um, perspective. And I'm grateful for uh, for people who are willing to to call me out on on that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I figure if I'm with that approach, that I whatever consequences might come my way from folks within the groups uh, with whom I identify, I am never going to run afoul of um, of my own conscience mm. that. Whatever happens, I can say that I've um, that I've been doing my best to advocate for justice, for what is right, for uh, for equality and uh, and equity. So I, I I have I I understand that I'm in a in a privileged position in a lot of ways because of um, the uh, employment that I used to have gave me access to uh, a lot of resources, a lot of knowledge. Uh, I was above a lot of criticism that might have been a lot more harmful to uh, to other folks. Uh, I'm I'm aware that I occupy a space that that not a lot of people have had access to. Uh, but so far, I've I've found that uh, the approach that I've committed to has been one that is, as far as I can tell, has has been a lot more beneficial to me and the folks around me than than detrimental. So I'm I am intending to forge ahead with that approach of uh, of being as critical as I can in my scholarship, uh, and then always acknowledging that uh, if there is if there are power asymmetries involved, if there are more and less powerful groups, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the less powerful. And, um, and so when, when people say I'm just as dogmatic, I'll, I'll say there's one dogma that I maintain. Um, but I don't know that, uh, that equals, uh, being as dogmatic as uh, a lot of fundamentalist, uh, Christian groups. Right. Speaking of different groups, your 
comment section. I don't know how often you <laughs> scroll through your comment section. It is quite wild. And one of the interesting things about your comment section is how many groups try to claim you as kind of their own. And then they fight over with each other. Like you're this kind of toy that everybody's um, <laughs> trying to pull. And so I've seen kind of atheists try to claim you to which you've had to make public. You've actually had to respond to that. I've seen Mormons claim you like, look, he's an active Mormon. I've seen ex-Mormons claim you uh, by saying, but look, he's actually speaking out about things. He's one of our guys. And then I've seen Christians claim and fight over you. So how do you deal with, um, all these different groups kind of playing with you like you're their new favorite toy. How do you deal with that? <laughs> it makes me very uncomfortable. And, and this is something that a friend of mine actually was dealing with earlier that um, I get kind of pedestalized um, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of comment sections. And uh, I have uh, a friend who is, is in graduate school and uh, she gets comments about, uh, how she needs to be more careful with her grammar and her posts if she's going to be associated with me. And it's like, I like I am not that great with my own grammar. And so don't hold me up as some kind of paragon of this that that she needs to be compared to. And there's you know, there's um, that's gendered in a lot of ways, but it makes me very uncomfortable in, the, in that regard, that um, a lot of people are holding me up as something more than I actually am. However, uh, at the same time, and, and this is something I used to be a lot more open about when I first started my channel, I would let people know I'm not here fighting for any team. And if you think that I'm on your team, you are going to be disappointed, irrespective of, of the identity that you call your team, whether it's ex-Mormon or Mormon or atheist or Christian or, or whatever. Um, because I am making a concerted effort to try to prioritize the data over the dogma, and because those identity politics are a part of the dogma, I'm going to say something that pisses you off um, eventually. And so um, I've kind of, uh, I used to, again, I used to make that more explicit. Maybe I need to make that more uh, explicit now. Uh, but the I, I think prioritizing the data means I'm going to cross a lot of those lines, and I'm not going to honor those um, those social identities. And so the people who, who try to claim me and hold me up as, as some kind of example of an identity are going to ultimately be disappointed. Um, but at the same time, I get messages every day from supporters and from detractors across the entire spectrum of belief and non-belief. So I think I am um, I'm striking a, a good note, I think, if I have supporters and detractors across that whole spectrum. I think I'm in a good spot if people who are believers, people who are non-believers, people who are Latter-day Saints or atheists or Jewish or, or anything else can all find things to appreciate about my content. And then there, there are also those who find things to hate about my content. So, um, so I, I use that as a barometer for how I'm doing. If uh, if it starts to lean too much in one direction, then that probably means I'm I'm doing something wrong. But um, for the time being, I get uh, I get messages of support and of and of ridicule across the whole spectrum. So I'm <clears throat> I've always kind of been a, a a man without a country in in that regard. 
um, from the moment I joined the uh, the LDS church and went on a mission and came home from mission, went to BYU, I've always felt like there are folks who, who want to claim me and folks who, who want to um, unclaim me or disclaim me. Uh, and so that's nothing new, but, um, but I kind of relish to some degree being outside of that. Uh, I think that is what I should be doing if I am truly trying to put data over dogma, as like I said, I, I aspire to. So as yeah. long as long as the main team we're on is the data over dogma team, then we, we might be on the same team then. <laughs> mm. And until um, yeah, but I and I always I'm also uncomfortable about about the um, the data over dogma thing itself being kind of an identity. I uh, that is kind of bubbling to the surface in some ways as well, which makes me a little uncomfortable because I I don't want it to be about me. I, I would like to see a lot of other people come in and, and kind of take up mm. um, not that not that motto, but but a similar approach and mm. um, and, and take maybe some take some of the eyes off of me uh, in that regard. But yeah, as as long as people are prioritizing data, uh, I think that that crosses those boundaries and and that's going to result in um, uh, in befriending and in alienating uh, all those different social identities. Yeah. So when you were when you went to BYU and maybe you didn't have this experience because you were a convert, but many people who go through kind of the kind of schooling that you went through um, will have experienced an identity crisis when they come to realize, which you will at some point in your schooling, if you go into biblical studies, that you when you come to see it as a negotiable text, maybe mm -hmm. some identity or some sense of objective morality or some there's some psychological anchor there that people can lose in theology school. I'm, I'm one of those who went to theology school and to find God and lost a lot of my identity and belief in God along the way. And that's not an mm. abnormal experience. So did you have any of that kind of identity crisis or was it just from day one kind of because you hadn't developed an identity around the Bible, you were able to always approach it as a negotiable text? I, I think I always approached it as a negotiable text. I came into the LDS Church as an adult and brought a lot of um, my thinking that I grew up with as agnostic with me, and nobody ever tried to beat it out of me. Um, I, I can still recall, and and you know that's that's probably uh, unique. I wasn't raised. I, I didn't have these. Um, these kind of black and white, simple binary ideologies um, conditioned into me as a child. So I wasn't raised with them. And when I got into the church, I, I was given a lot of latitude. I, I still remember um, going into my first institute class shortly after I got baptized in a little chapel on Beltline Road in, in Dallas. And there was a big blue sign on the back of the wall um, opposite the, the entryway that said, find out for yourself. And so I was, I came into the church with the expectation that it's my job to figure these things out, that I'm not going to be told how I have to do that. And, um, and the longer I've been in the church, the more I see that, uh, <laughs> that that message is probably intended for people who were raised 
um, and conditioned to think a certain way about what that message actually means. But for me, it, it meant something different. And so when I got into BYU and started studying these things, I was I thought of this as a as a blank slate that I was given the keys to this car and I was going to go, um, you know, take it wherever I felt it needed to go. And so I, I felt like there was uh, a, a lot of freedom there. And, and I know for a fact that that is not the case for a lot of folks who are members of the church who go into this kind of study. So. So that is probably a, a combination of circumstances and experiences that is not very common within um, Latter-day Saints study of the Bible. But No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I've even been on the receiving end of like, don't go into biblical theology. You're not going to come back. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, that was not. Yeah, I would say that's that's not the usual approach that members are allowed to take. Yeah, I, I remember being told about how uh, BYU, before I showed up, they had uh, they had financed a bunch of graduate degrees for a bunch of folks or something like that, and every last one of them left the church or something like that. And I don't remember exactly the history, but but that was um, used as as kind of a a threat, not not a threat, a warning that hey, just so you know, and um, I just kind of ignored it and. Um, figured there's, you know, we're told all the time that, uh, uh, that if these things are true, then, then they can be subjected to any degree of scrutiny. And so I took that seriously and I don't apologize for applying scrutiny to these things. Um, when I think of, so I, I was a late teenager, 17 years old when I joined the LDS church, I was a convert a little younger than you, but. I also can, as you answered that, I could see some value in growing up not attached to that and how it allowed me to maybe think more reasonably. And I don't mean that offensively, just when you grow up inside a system, you have that small lens of that system and it's really hard sometimes to get out of that. And I think about like what my parents weren't religious at all. So I think about like, what was it that taught me good and evil? Cause my parents didn't really have, they were good parents, but they didn't really have hands-on conversation or life teaching. Mm-hmm. And I, I got it from like cartoons or TV shows. And, and all of that is myth, right? To watch Bugs Bunny or Roadrunner, it's a mythological story. If I go to the theaters and watch the newest Marvel movie, I see the Marvel stuff in the background. Mm-hmm. All of them have that in common. Um, myth doesn't need to be understood literally for it to have an impact on us and for us to learn good from evil. Yeah, And myth being taken literally seems to have given a huge benefit to the human species to perpetuate itself throughout thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I've had debates with folks, conversations with folks where on the side of I wish no one took religious myth literally, I also am aware that maybe we would even harm the human species in doing that, that we might diminish our ability to perpetuate. And also there's benefit to it that might enable us to perpetuate as well, that we might see our enemy as human like us. Your thoughts on negotiating that line of how important it is to have myth be believed literally by big groups of people versus 
maybe a health year, maybe not, of none of us taking these myths literally and beginning to have a global society where we value each other as equal and as human, just like me? I, uh, it's a complex question. Um, uh, there, there was a book by a scholar named Ara Norenstein called Big Gods, uh, which is about um, evolutionary psychology and how uh, large-scale national religions and deities uh, develop within the history of, of human evolution. And, and one of the leading theories within the, the cognitive science of religion is that religion is a kind of a, a social framework that increases what we call pro-sociality or um, social cohesion. It allows groups to know, um, you know, you, you referenced earlier um, Dunbar's number, about 150 people. You can't really know every individual personally. And so um, in groups larger than that, you're going to run into people and you're going to have to trust people that you may not know personally. And so you need some kind of mechanism to be able to, to know that they can be trusted. And, uh, and so that's one of the, the origins of ritual. We have these social conventions that develop for no other reason than that they allow us to determine that someone else is a member of our group and knows the expectations. And so shaking hands is an example of just one of these social rituals that, that develops for, for that kind of pers- purpose. Are you going to signal to me that you understand the expectations and the conventions and are, are willing to, um, to perform them? Uh, and there are all kinds of different uh, rituals, but myth is one component of that. And uh, I think I think it probably functioned more effectively before the Reformation. I'm, uh, I used to say that the central concern of Christianity prior to the Reformation, not the only concern, but the central concern was how genuine is your love of God. And then after the Reformation, the central concern became how true are your propositions or your beliefs about God? Because one of the things that the Reformation and then the Enlightenment did was bring rationality into this and turn it into a question of truth propositions and truth claims. And now that's kind of the center of what we think of as religion. Uh, But prior to the Renaissance, the Reformation and Enlightenment, I think a lot of people thought about the traditions that we lived not so much as, as questions of literal or true or things like that, but probably viewed them as, as stories that, uh, that gave us new and different ways to think about the world. Uh, and I, I, there's a lot of research I would love to do on, on how people engage with these traditions and myths uh, before the shift of the Reformation and the Enlightenment. But, yeah, being literal about things, I think is an effort to try to make things to try to create clear boundaries and clearer boundaries are easier, easier to manage and easier to control. And it makes it easier to engage in boundary maintenance and makes it easier to tell who's in and who's out, which I think contributes can contribute to a lot more harm. The world is a lot messier than, than that. And, um, and so I, I think with myth, particularly, I would love to see a lot less literalness. It would make things messier. It would make boundaries harder to maintain and to curate. It would 
give people a lot more fluidity in their identities and uh, their membership in, in different social identities and in different institutions. And so it would be a much different world, but I think it would be a, a world in which people would be able to find a lot more comfort because there are folks who are just kind of cognitively set up to find a lot more value in the non-literal approach and other people are more cognitively set up to find more, more meaning and more significance in a more literal approach. And, uh, and yeah, I think having fewer strict lines and boundaries and rules uh, would make things a lot more comfortable for a lot more people. But, yeah, it would make it difficult to, um, to control boundaries and things like that. Mm. I, I have a follow-up question on that that I didn't add in the outline, but it, it reminds me, what do you think of this idea? I think it was Carl Jung. Um, I might have to fact check that, who talked about how, the enlightenment was not a rejection of Christianity. It was the natural expression of Christianity because if you have a religion that focuses on the word and you have this history of conversation and truth that it trained us to seek for truth until it eventually turned and started to look at itself. And so according to Carl Jung, the enlightenment and this rise of rationality is not a rejection of Christianity it was what we were trained to do in Christianity. What do you think about that idea? Um, I that that feels a little teleological to me, um, but but I think that that sees some uh, some beauty in that process. So I, I I don't know that I would say that's how the first. 1400 years of, of Christianity, uh, it doesn't seem to me it was aimed in that direction, but I, but I think that's a beautiful way to understand that, that pivot. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's a way to accept the outcome and to, to find value and meaning in the outcome. Mm. Um, but yeah, Jung and I are, are not the, uh, the closest of bedfellows. So mm, that's um, interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so I, this is a personal question, but Bill and I have um, had various times in, in Sunday school where we have to kind of make personal rules for ourselves for mm -hmm. when we're going to be the actually guy. And, <laughs> and you know, both of us came to this conclusion That's where if it's I always raise my hand and say, actually. <laughs> and that's why you're excommunicated. Yeah, you <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> But I think we both started to just, you know, raise our hand when there was something harmful. You know, if, if there was a message going on um, in the discussion where someone's going to go home and feel worse or feel suicidal or something yeah. that we would be that person. But if there was something harmlessly wrong, you know, you can't spend your social capital maybe on those things. So do you have kind of rules for yourself in Sunday school? I'm curious to know what Dan McClellan in Sunday school looks like? <laughs> well, uh, last year I was the instructor. So um, I was the that one in, in front of the class. And uh, yeah, and it was for, and it was just because they, I don't think they could find anybody who wanted to teach Old Testament. So, um, and, you know, I got released the first day of January. So, um, <clears throat> but I, I tend to keep my mouth shut. I get asked about things more often than I volunteer my, my opinion. Um, but I have a very similar approach. It was something that, uh, that I saw when I started to teach, uh, 
people who did not usually attend Sunday school started attending, and particularly women uh, and some of the younger people uh, that I know didn't feel good and didn't feel safe in uh, in Sunday school. And then since I w- have been released, they are are not attending Sunday school again. And so I've I've tried to be sensitive to what kinds of of comments are going to be interpreted, be internalized uh, by people who might be uh, in the classroom and in ways that wouldn't be helpful to their um, self-image and their uh, and their um, value. Uh, and so I, I think uh, I would speak up in, in um, situations that sound very similar to the reasons you would uh, speak up. And then, yeah, anytime somebody says anything about Hebrew or Greek, uh, that's the only other thing where I'm like, no, I, I got to put a stop to this, um, <laughs> which happens, which happens a lot. Um, but once we get into uh, Book of Mormon and D&C, then uh, I can relax a little bit more because there's a lot less Hebrew and Greek going on there. Somebody will find some way to inject those discussions with uh, with that, though, I'm sure. Yeah. In in high demand fundamentalist religion, there is in religion a distrust of outside information, of outside sources. And we even see within our own religion, there are times where it feels very much like leaders, even scholars, tend to avoid putting the factual information in front of people, sort of obscure it a little bit, carefully word things around it. And I understand the debate. The debate is the preservation of faith. Like, do we have some degree of dishonesty, maybe? At very least, some degree of deceptiveness in portraying the information of our religion one way while knowing that there are things we're keeping from the conversation or trying to prevent the other person from having access to or sensing that it's out there in a conversation. Where do you, how do you sort of navigate in your own head? And I sort of know where you come down data over dogma, but how do you navigate in your own head, the idea of preserving faith by not giving people all of it or letting them know that all of it exists somewhere versus um, versus like, Hey, I'm going to lay it all out there. If this completely crushes your beliefs and so be it, sorry about that. Cause I sense that you're not that either. I'm, cu- I'm curious how maybe you walk that line. I would say I lean a little more into that, mm-hmm. into the, these are the data and, and um, you know, do with them what you will, then uh, I, I certainly don't take a, a milk before meat approach. And I get, I get criticized pretty harshly from time to time on, on my channels for uh, being destructive to faith and, and things like that. And, um, and I, I knew that comes with the territory, but uh, I, because I'm trying to speak to a broader audience than just Latter-day Saints, I'm I'm trying to be a, a general resource to um, all of the uh, the English-speaking world that has interest in this, and even to some degree, I, I I'm not creating as much Spanish language content as I I would like to be, but I also create some Spanish language content. Um, but yeah, I I try to approach this as I'm, I'm going to put the data out there. If we take seriously the notion that, uh, that truth is, 
is open to um, scrutiny, then I'm going to lay it all out there. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, my goal is absolutely not to destroy faith or even to destroy the Bible. My goal is to share the insights and the findings of the academic study of the Bible. Uh, and so some of that is going to be um, less corrosive to faith than other aspects of it. And so sometimes I, I will share stuff that some people don't like to hear. Other people do like to hear. Um, so, yeah, I think I would actually probably describe myself as leaning a little more into the um, these are the data consequences be damned kind of uh, approach. and. But the but the goal is not to just uh, reject every faith claim. That's entirely separate from what I'm trying to do. The goal is just try to trying to help people understand the data, and and yeah, I would say the the majority of the data that I share is is uh, probably not conducive to most people's faithful approaches to the text. But that's not always the case. And, and I get messages every day from folks who um, who tell me that they see me as, um, or not they see me as, but uh, folks who, who tell me that they feel like they have permission now to, to negotiate their faith in a different way. And they feel like that makes it stronger. Uh, and so I, I think there are folks all across the spectrum who are going to uh, interact with the, the data that I'm providing in, in different ways. Um, but as yeah, little, probably. As a little follow-up, I mean, a, a big yeah. motive for me is that I, I deeply believe that everyone should have access to as much information as possible, or at the least know the information exists and if they want to go pursue it by all means, mm -hmm. because I think people make the healthiest decisions in their life when they have the fullest scope of information available to them. Generally, I, I sense that part of your motivation, I, I sense that in you, would you, would you sort of agree with that, that people deserve to have the information or know it exists in order to make healthy decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the reasons that, one of the main reasons I, I started up these social media accounts is because of all the information, misinformation that I was seeing being spread. And one of the reasons it was spreading was because people didn't know where to find accurate information. And a lot of these things, there's just not accurate information there. You know, people can come up with all kinds of ridiculous claims and put it on the Internet. And if there's not somebody out there who has the time, the motivation and the skills and the expertise to actually say this specific claim is wrong because of this, this, and this, you know, sometimes that can take months and years. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. But, um, but I wanted to be the person who was going to be able to try to um, respond in real time to those, to those claims so that people would have access to, uh, to that kind of information if they wanted it. And, and yeah, I think it should always be available. And, th and there are ways to frame the provisioning of this information in ways that I, I try not to frame it as, Hey, I'm coming after your faith. Um, because that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm, I try to frame it as I'm just providing the data. Uh, and some people, I think they perceive that as threatening. Other people perceive it as, uh, as harmless. Um, and so they kind of consume it according to, to that perception. Um, 
So I think some people are are going to find that a threat and something pernicious and something hateful, um, no matter how I frame it. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would agree that that's that's kind of what my main goal is there is to make the the data available for those uh, who want it. Something that must be very difficult for you, I mean, it's difficult for anyone who has an expertise in anything, but to try to condense, you know, 20 years of study that, you know, in these particular approaches, but you only have this person for two minutes. So (laughs) what is kind of, what do you think is the hardest kind of concept or at least the concept that takes the longest to explain to people, like the longest, like if you have someone that you're in a dialogue they come at you with something and you know, to really dispel this, you need kind of 20 minutes. You, you need to, you need to set some time. What are those things that take the longest to explain? I think, um, yeah, that, that is something that's very complex. And and I kind of lean into, sometimes I lean into the s- sensationalizing side of things um, just as a hook to try to get people interested. So they stay tuned for the whole, you know, now we can do 10 minute videos on TikTok and, and I don't like doing that, but sometimes they, they get up that long. But um, uh, a lot of the things that have to do with our hermeneutic our approach, how we uh, approach interpreting the text is is a lot more complex. And then also uh, I have some theories about, <clears throat> about things like um, early Christology that take a little time to explain and are multifaceted. And so those are things that I need to do a series on or something like that. Mm. Um, where do you... Um, ha- what do you make of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible? And my guess is you're going to say you see a man negotiating with text and it's clearly what he's doing. He's reading things. He's reading the Bible. He's maybe got some Bible commentary and he's negotiating with the text. Do you see that happening with Joseph in his translation of the Bible? Do you see anything that he did there that lasted the scrutiny of biblical scholarship or do you see really just a man negotiating with text? Uh, I I think there are some few places where the changes um, Joseph Smith introduced align with how scholars approach the text today, but they're, they're in the minority. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. This was an attempt to take a text that was viewed as, as somewhat corrupted and, you know, not without reason. Uh, the the Bible is full of textual problems, and uh, I think there there are different theories about this. Some people see five, some people see seven different kind of categories of changes that were introduced by Joseph Smith that were attempts to update the text, to harmonize the text, to make the text easier to understand. There are a handful of different things that Joseph Smith is trying to do with the text. And we see very similar things going on. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide a number of examples of identical negotiations of biblical texts. Um, There was a a genre category they called uh, rewritten Bible for a while, and they've moved away from that genre category. But this is basically usually stories from Genesis and or Exodus where they're being retold in ways that are harmonizing, that are updating that are making easier to understand. They're doing the exact same thing that, that Joseph Smith is trying to do with the text. And so I I think this is um, 
just a part of kind of a natural impulse to turn the text into something that's a little more useful and meaningful to us today. And I think it was a lot more common anciently because we did not yet have this notion of the sanctity or the inviolability of the text, the notion that the the text itself was the locus of authority. That really begins in um, the first few centuries of the Common Era. And so we didn't really see that going on between ancient Judaism and Joseph Smith, but Joseph Smith was the first person in a long time to say, well, I have the authority to do it, so I'm going to do it. Um, And so I I think that was something unique to his approach, but what he was doing with his revision of the Bible is something that had been done many, many times over many, many centuries before. Hmm. Okay, well... You are welcome, of course, to not answer this, but you're here, so I'm going to shoot my shot here, (laughs) which is um, when you read the Bible and you see the doctrinal changes and yet human surety that you know that God is on your side, that human feeling stays the same. How does that not cast doubt on the legitimacy of the spiritual experiences that make you Mormon? Um, yeah, I would, I would say that's something that, that crosses the boundaries of, uh, of what I'm willing to address on, uh, that's on okay. social media. That's okay. I, uh, I, you know, the worst that you could say is no. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> uh, so I remember when I was, uh, when I was in college as a freshman and my focus at BYU was medieval exegesis with, um, mm-hmm. David Peck, and we were doing the four levels of scripture with Henry de Lubac, and it was the first time where someone was taking me through stories that I had heard my whole life because I was raised in the church, but we were going through these kind of levels of scripture, and the story was changing in these ways that were, it, it really felt to me I was just opening up this soul treasure chest. It was it was really uh, impactful for me as a person. So mm-hmm. do you have kind of like a favorite story um, or a favorite, you know, I really love digging into this text. I really love to do exegetical work with this text. Do you have kind of a favorite place that if I could play here forever, this would be the one that I would pick? Um, I'm actually going to say the Gospel of Mark uh, because I, I noticed this as a missionary. Um, you know, we had to do a lot of scripture study as missionaries, and I had only been a member for a year. Um, but I noticed that. I was just in a happier place when I was reading the Gospels. It was a it was a universe that I enjoyed occupying, uh, and I've uh, I've translated the Gospel of Mark for a um, for a childhood readership. I'm working on a translation of the New Testament that's aimed at about a ten to twelve year old readership, and um, and I started with the Gospel of Mark because I knew that would be the one I would enjoy the most, but it's just a world I enjoyed inhabiting, um, going over and, and visiting Israel and Palestine. And um, I've led a tour there uh, in the past and kind of getting on the ground in those places where these things happened. Um, I've always been a very imaginative person, but um, my imagination just runs wild when it comes to the Gospels and particularly the, the Gospel of Mark. So I, I think that's the one I um, 
I feel most at home reading, just kind of immersing myself in. Um, exegetically, probably not so much. Um, I'm less worried about exegesis as I am just inhabiting that world. Uh, but yeah, exegetically, there's uh, some things I find uh, more exciting. The Psalms, just because they're so rich and there's so much going on there. Psalm 82 is one of my favorites, and I've and I've published research on that before. Um, but but yeah, if uh, if I had to spend the rest of my life reading just one thing from the Bible, I would probably side with the with the Gospel of Mark. I, w- I want to go back to the. Uh... Translation of the Bible by Joseph Smith, the inspired translation. And mm-hmm. I grew up again. What, what year did you join the church, Dan? 2000. Okay. So I was 1996. So close. And the Mormonism I grew up with was it was absolutely imposed on all of us that what was happening there was that the Bible had been corrupted. Uh, priests had taken parts out. Things had been distorted. And Joseph Smith is coming along in restoring the Bible to its perfect ancient form. That was in the manuals. It was, it was the conversation in Sunday school. It was how we framed that idea. And then we're in this moment where, you know, as you guys are pointing to that previous question about the, the Bible, I, I'm hearing um, even facets of the church in like its programs to the youth, for instance. I forget what the name of the program is, but um, the, young, the young folks that are addressing LDS youth, not one mm-hmm. great, but the other one. And uh, yeah, I know, just a little chuckle. So in that, they're saying like, this is just the Bible commentary. This is Joseph Smith's attempt. I heard Thomas Wayman in an interview with uh, Rick Bennett on Gospel Tangents say the same thing. This is uh, a Bible commentary. Joseph, a lot of things wrong. There's some things here that are interesting, but he's messing up a lot of it. It it seems Mm -hmm. to be very flawed. That was his words, by the way. Flawed Bible commentary. Yeah. Such a for me, who was so Mormon in the '90s and the 2000s, it's so strange to have this religion that imposes it knows the right way, no matter what the rest of the world says, to be adapting in ways that completely contradict the doctrines as I was taught them, the theology as I was taught it. Yeah. Any thoughts on? Because even as a scholar, you have to go like, yeah, it, it is a flawed Bible commentary. At least for the most part, that's what it is. Yeah. And this leaving what we imposed it was by the mouth of prophets and correlated manuals, the absolute doctrine of the church, doctrines consistent and unchangeable. And we're learning sort of in this modern moment that all of this is up for grabs, that, that the data really does change almost everything. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think you probably have members of the church probably have opportunities to contemplate that anytime there's there's a large change. 1978 changed everything for for a lot of folks. Uh, I'm sure the end of uh, polygamy, when it finally did end, changed a lot of things uh, for folks. There are a lot of different ways that um, we try to champion the notion that we're open to continuous revelation. But at the same time, for our kind of day-to-day living of the religion, we prefer to think about it as as not open to revision. Uh, and this is one of the reasons you, you know, there there are a lot of folks when it comes to gender and things like that today. A lot of folks are like, well, this is never changing. Say, like, hey, they said the same thing about blacks in the priesthood for a long time, 
And then it changed. And then everybody had to say, yep, we were wrong. Deal with it. And uh, and so I, I think that people would do better to, to stop trying to I think a lot of uh, a lot of religious ideologies they exist to make sense of the way things are, but the way things are is never static. It's always changing, and people deploy those attempts to make sense of the way things are to try to control and to curate the way things are going to be in ways that serve their own interests. And that's where I think a lot of the brittleness and the binary dichotomous nature of uh, how people talk about these doctrines comes from. Uh, it It's about power, it's about authority, it's about boundary maintenance. Uh, and our church, however, has this kind of relief valve built in that if it's got to change, it can change. And that kind of disrupts the kind of day-to-day expectation that we have a grip on things uh, and then it throws it up in the air for a little bit until we're able to kind of cons- reconcile everything and, and consolidate it and kind of tamp everything down into what we're comfortable with, this notion that we've got a good grip on everything and it's not going to change. And then one day it's going to change again. So, yeah, I, I think there's there are problems with with that approach and there are. But I don't I don't see it changing anytime soon. We're in a. The, the Latter-day Saint Church is one that uh, leans very, very heavily on the boundary maintenance, very, very heavily on the costly signaling mm-hmm. and the things that we have to do every day to make sure that everyone else knows that we're a faithful member. Um, I can go on Twitter and, you know, the, the number of people who um, <laughs> can't stand me on Twitter grows exponentially every day. And it's almost always because I refuse to signal my fidelity to them in the ways that they demand, uh, which is it's just about costly signaling. Yeah. And when you're living a religion only to signal to other people that you're a faithful member of the religion, you're not really living the religion you're just uh you're just following the institution so yeah well yeah it gets it gets a lot more complicated from there but um but those are my thoughts totally um it feels like again you hit on it sort of it feels like the real thing that's up for grabs here is that the top 15 men in mormonism put themselves forth as prophet seers and revelators that they discern the will of God from God's mouth, his lips to their ears. And as we, uh, you know, Charlie Harold, his book, This Is My Doctrine, for instance, shows that every doctrine in the church has had some shifting and changing. Mm-hmm. It, it seems as though the biggest obstacle that they're sort of wanting to avoid, at least not doing it too quickly, is everyone in the church having to wrestle with how inaccurate these men have been all through the time of the restored church, which would then cause everyone to go inside and go, I'm not going to trust outer authorities as knowing everything. I'm going to go, maybe they're wrong about a lot of things and I'm going to start thinking that through. And and the question I want to kind of frame that with is, for instance, we were taught that Christ established a church. He called apostles. He was the first Christian. He established the Christian church. He, uh, you know, gave these offices, gave this priesthood power, gave this authority. 
And you see that shifting right now. The Maxwell Institute just came out with a book called, I think, Ancient Christians, um, where they essentially go, the great apostasy is not what we thought it was. Christ establishing a church is not what we thought it was. But they still sort of go like, no, he didn't leave Judaism and start a church, but maybe we should reevaluate what it means to start a church. And we're going to propose on some level that he did that within Judaism. And I, I don't see any evidence of that. And again, pointing to data over dogma, what are your thoughts about the idea that Christ did anything to establish a church within as a subsegment of the Jewish faith uh, in his in his life before dying and resurrecting? Yeah, I <clears throat> I don't see any uh, any evidence of that in any way that would be. Um, that would be useful for uh, an institutional church today. I, I think that's that's an outgrowth of the idea of the restoration. Mm-hmm. We're restoring the church. The church must have been there anciently if it's in need of restoration. And so we're going to posit that it was um, original to uh, Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, but yeah, I don't think the data supports the notion that anything like what we would call a church was established by by Jesus during his earthly ministry. At most, it was a movement. Um, and oddly enough, this is this is part of what uh, resulted in William Tyndall dying on um, on the stake, is that there were a handful of words that he wanted to change in his English translation of the Bible, and one of them was rather than church. He went with assembly, because that's a better translation of uh, ecclesia, and uh, and he was killed because of it, because that undermined the authority of the church. The suggestion that this institution is not found in the text is not something that Jesus himself uh, instituted. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, these these are not new debates. These these things have have been around for a long time, and the stakes have been even higher. Um, in the past. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, I think, uh, scholars within the, the LDS tradition are, they have more latitude today than they've had at any point in the past. And so I, I think they're, um, starting to push into the dark a little bit to try to, uh, to try to allow the data to operate on its own terms. But yeah, at the same time, they're still, they still uh, don't want to get too far away from home base. Yeah. Um, but hopefully we'll continue to push uh, the boundaries of what is uh, permissible in LDS scholarship. I, I, I want to let Britt ask her last two questions. So this isn't a question, but just a note to the audience. It is interesting. We're going to have to wrestle with what is the restoration if the things we claim are restored aren't really match the data. And so the restoration will then need to become something else too, in a sense, as time goes forward. Anyway, Britt. All right. So yeah, last two questions, then we'll let you go, Dan. So I know something that is, is really just kind of a core value or a, a kind of a morality compass for you is, is really 
trying to give voice to whatever group is being marginalized in a power imbalance. And I'm curious if you get pressure, I'm sure you do, um, because I get quite a bit of pressure to report on the Gaza situation and make mm -hmm. a stand and make a public statement. And I've had people call me out. I've had people specifically make videos that here's another white woman in religion and spirituality, but when it's not about her, she's not making a statement about this. There's a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of free Palestine on TikTok. And I'm sure you're getting some pressure to at least lend your expertise of the history of this area and the religious aspects going on to make some kind of public statement. And there's tons of virtual virtue signaling going on on multiple sides. So how mm -hmm. have you, do you have a, what do you want to do with that? Because I know that there's part of you that wants to, to, to give voice to injustices, but then it's such a complex thing. And there's, uh, yeah. How, how, are you, how are you handling that so that I know how I, I'm still trying to figure out how I want to handle this? So I've, I've made a handful of um, videos. There are two that I can think of right off the bat that, um, that I've made that have kind of directly targeted some of the debate uh, on this one. Uh, I've made a video on the idea that the Palestinians are not indigenous to the area. Um, and I've, I've made numerous videos and I've been on podcasts and um, about the, the Khazar hypothesis, the idea that Ashkenazi Jewish folks are not indigenous to the area as well, but are descended from Khazar uh, converts to Judaism from um, the Middle Ages. And, uh, and I've come down pretty firmly on the side of uh, the fact that both of these groups are as indigenous to this area as you can be, that both Palestinians and Jewish people, including Ashkenazi Jewish people, show genetic markers going all the way back to the Bronze Age. And so they they share indigeneity in the region. Um, and I have tried to limit my, my comments to those things where I can speak with some kind of expertise because um, I'm not an expert on on what's going on modern day. I'm not an expert on um, the history of Palestine in the in the 19th century, the 20th century. I'm not an expert on that kind of stuff, and I certainly do not have the experience to be able to speak about what it means to be a Palestinian or to be an Israeli. Um, so I, I try to um, make videos where I actually have something to say and can also come down hard on the side of this is Islamophobic or this is anti-Semitic and this is harmful and people are being hurt because of this. Uh, and I think most of all, my concern is not for the systems that are either protecting or hurting people, but for the people who are being protected or hurt by these systems. And so frequently, and particularly in our identity politics, why there is so much virtue signaling is, is because we, we tend to conflate the interests of the system and the interests of the individuals and ignore that these are two different, very different things. Um, and I don't think that uh, we should feel the death of a child is right if that child was born in one part of uh, that land and the, the death of that child is wrong if they were born in another part of that land. I think um, that's always wrong. And, uh, and we need to be engaging these issues in constructive ways rather than just in ways that uh, 
that confirm our preconceptions and that advance the interests of, of our social identities. And that's a complex thing. Um, there's a lot of, there are accusations that this is um, creating moral equivalency uh, when we don't hold up one as, as unilaterally correct and the other as unilaterally wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I think there has to be room for nuance and, and understanding all of the different systems and all of the different structures of power and all of the different uh, lives uh, that come into play here. And yeah, I'm. Do you get? Again, do you get a? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, and I'm I'm not an expert on on most of the questions involved in that, and so I try to to limit my my commentary to what I feel like I can speak, um, in an informed way about. Do you get a sense on TikTok that there's this narrative really being fueled by the left, I would say, that it, it's almost like they're trying to make Palestine into kind of the nice indigenous um, Native American tribe and Israel is the big bad colonizer with money from the West and they're creating this kind of colonial narrative. And so everybody needs to be saying free Palestine or else you are a white person that is being silent to the problem. I'm seeing a lot of this narrative. Do you have any sense of how that kind of emerged? I know we're outside your area of expertise, but do you have any <laughs> thought on that? That really is to me the narrative that I'm seeing on TikTok. Do you have any thoughts on that narrative? Well, I, I think there are a lot of the, a lot of the groups that have been sympathetic to the struggle of the Palestinians are minority groups because they yeah. identify mm -hmm. with them. And so I think that probably um, gives rise as, as people are thinking about this situation and how to uh, advance their own, their own narrative and their own interests um, that gives rise to this um, kind of parallel that, that's being drawn about uh, colonialism with the experiences of, of other groups that have suffered under, under colonialism. And you know there there is some truth to it, and there's also I think some manipulation to trying to reduce it to something so binary as you must engage in this specific act of costly signaling, otherwise you're the enemy. Uh, I I think that's trying to reduce things down to to identity politics, to um, saying you're either for me or you're against me, um, and yeah I, I think that is causing a lot of uh, a lot of the divide and it's causing a lot of trouble with groups that have historically been able to communicate a lot more freely without mm. as much fear and without as much censorship. Um, but yeah, it's it's a complex issue and nobody I, I don't think any side is is free from uh, any side is is free from the real threat of harm or free from any kind of um, uh, any kind of responsibility for some of the things that that uh, are going on. And that's not to say it's shared 50 50. Uh, I think it's far more complex than that. But yeah, I, I would love to see uh, the killing and the dying stop on on all sides. Uh, yeah. And I would love to see people come to the table with with real solutions that can point in the direction of uh, of a safe world for all of these groups that does not include the elimination of of any other group. 
Right. Yeah. It, it seems that both sides have dirty hands, right? Like, and it, as is the case often in these long battles back and forth that that take extreme amounts of time and sort of have both sides thinking they're right. And, and I, yeah, and I, I think it's, and not everybody shares in that. I, I think there are, there are agents within the systems um, on each side that have a lot dirtier hands than the majority of the others, but because they are able to wield the levers of power, they can, um, they can get everybody else marching along with them. Um, yeah, that's and, a good distinction. Yeah. All right. So last question, and then we're just going to do a big shout out to kind of all of your projects. What's your kind of favorite thing, the most rewarding thing about being a public scholar and kind of the hardest thing. And then, uh, we'll, we'll shout out what you got going. Uh, on your kind of platforms? Uh, I think my favorite thing is hearing from people who tell me that I've made a difference in their life, that I've helped them heal, that I've helped them repair relationships, that I have helped them overcome trauma, anxiety, or things like that. That is the most rewarding part of all of this by far. And probably the the hardest part is, um, as somebody trained in the cognitive science of religion, I'm, uh, I'm more aware of my own um, cognition than probably a, a human being should be. And so I worry every single day about how I'm approaching this. If I'm allowing things to get out of hand in this direction, if I'm, if I'm giving too much attention to this, I, I am just constantly worried about how this is affecting my approach to these questions and how I, um, how I curate the content that I produce. And so I just don't want to turn into the very thing that I spend so much time critiquing. And so um, that is the thing that occupies my, my mind the most, making sure that uh, I am staying true to the, to my original goals and that I'm not letting things get to my head, which is a, a mm. constant worry. And how can people find, okay, sorry, go ahead, Bill. I was going to say two things. And I'm, I'm just, cause I want to make sure I cover the first one first, which is, would you, you mentioned big gods, which I mm-hmm. link up in my bar. I'll add that to the source notes of the show. I had mentioned sapiens earlier, which I always think is a great read for folks. Um, any other books or th- podcasting, anything that folks could gravitate towards outside of your content that you would say, man, this is a great read. If you really want to understand these kinds of issues better point them to that. And then what Britt and I were going to say here last is just what, where can people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, where you're TikToking, where you're doing a podcast yourself. And so folks can mm-hmm. uh, chase down data over dogma. Yeah. Um, Big Gods was a really good book. Um, there's another really good book by Harvey Whitehouse called The Ritual Animal. That is uh, all about how uh, we use ritual to kind of uh, curate our, our society. Uh, I frequently get asked what the best um, kind of gateway books into biblical scholarship are, and one that I recommend every time is John Barton's book, A History of the Bible. Um, the book and its faiths. Uh, this is a phenomenal introduction to the Bible that talks a lot about the different hermeneutical approaches that early Christianity, early Judaism have taken, and also just how the the text of the Bible came together. So I highly recommend that book as well. Um, And uh, Claire White wrote a wonderful introduction to the cognitive science of religion. If somebody heard me talk about that or or heard you mention that and and wonders what on earth is the cognitive science of religion, there's uh, that's a wonderful intro uh, by Claire White. 
And uh, I go by um, my username McClellan on all kinds of uh, different social media. And it's it's the phonetic spelling of my last name that I used when I was living in, in Uruguay as a missionary, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Um, Spanish speakers don't like last names that begin with four consonants in a row. It, uh, it's, and a lot of English speakers can't even get my name, uh, right either. But, uh, but I used that phonetic spelling, uh, as a username when I got home because nobody else had it and it was very convenient. So I'm on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, I'm on, I'm on YouTube, uh, I'm on Blue Sky, I'm on Threads, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, and then I, I keep my personal, um, stuff on Facebook. So I don't do an awful lot of my, uh, my public scholarship on, uh, Facebook. And then we have the, uh, the data over dogma podcast, which releases weekly episodes. Uh, and tonight we're going to be, uh, we have Joel McHale coming on to help us answer listener. I saw uh, that. That's amazing. <laughs> to, uh, to answer listener submitted questions. Uh, he's going to give some color commentary as we go through the, the old mailbag. So, um, we're branching out and I think we're doing some pretty fun stuff uh, on the podcast. And then I'm joined by professors um, Robin Faith Walsh and Candida Moss uh, in a, a group we call Didaskaloi, which is a Greek word that means teachers. And we do online classes on there. So uh, tonight, uh, Professor Walsh is teaching on ancient sci-fi and early Christianity. And then uh, in December, I'm going to be teaching a class called What is Religion? where we're going to go into the history of the concept uh, and a little bit into the cognitive science of religion. Sci-fi and Christianity. It's like two of your favorite things had a baby. That's, <laughs> that's exciting. We didn't get into some of your nerdier pursuits, but <laughs> we can leave, we can leave that for another day. I wonder if there's an overlap between people who really love kind of the epic story, going through the epic stories of, of the Bible or ancient literature and kind of more nerdier pursuits of the Lord of the Rings and the Marvel. I wonder if there's like a Venn diagram overlap of those two groups. I would well, like I'm, to, I would like to see a study done on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's quite a significant overlap, but I yeah. think so too. I think so too. There's something there. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we, we really loved picking your brain about some of these things and we so appreciated the conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Mm -hmm.